Chapter 21, Part 2 of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 2 by John Fox. Edited by William Bryan Forbush. Chapter 21, Persecutions of the French Protestants in the South of France during the years 1814 and 1820, Part 2. Outrages committed in the villages, etc. We now quit Nimes to take a view of the conduct of the persecutors in the surrounding country. After the re-establishment of the royal government, the local authorities were distinguished for their zeal and forwardness in supporting their employers, and under pretense of rebellion, concealment of arms, non-payment of contributions, etc., troops, national guards, and armed mobs were permitted to plunder arrest and murder peaceable citizens not merely with impunity but with encouragement and approbation at the village of milahad near nimes the inhabitants were frequently forced to pay large sums to avoid being pillaged this however would not avail at madame Toulon's. on sunday the sixteenth of july her house and grounds were ravaged the valuable furniture removed or destroyed the hay and wood burnt, and the corpse of a child buried in the garden, taken up and dragged around a fire made by the populace. It was with great difficulty that M. Tulon escaped with his life. M. Pichirol, another Protestant, had deposited some of his effects with a Catholic neighbor. This house was attacked, and although all the property of the latter was respected, that of his friend was seized and destroyed. At the same village, one of a party doubting whether M. Hermit, a tailor, was the man they wanted, asked, Is he a Protestant? This he acknowledged, Good, said they, and he was instantly murdered in the canton of Vauvert, where there is a consistory church. Eighty thousand francs were extorted. In the communes of Beauvoisin and Generac, similar excesses were committed by a handful of licentious men under the eye of the Catholic mayor, and to the cries of Vive de Roy, St. Gilles was the scene of the most unblushing villainy. The Protestants, the most wealthy of the inhabitants, were disarmed, whilst the houses were pillaged. The mayor was appealed to, but he laughed and walked away. This officer had at his disposal a national guard of several men, organized by his own orders. It would be wearisome to read the list of the crimes that occurred during many months. At Clavison the mayor prohibited the Protestants the practice of singing the psalms commonly used in the temple that, as he said, the Catholics might not be offended or disturbed. At Samires, about ten miles from Nimes, the Catholics made a splendid procession through the town which continued until evening and was succeeded by the plunder of the protestants on the arrival of the foreign troops as summaries the pretended search for arms was resumed those who did not possess muskets were even compelled to buy them on the purpose to surrender them up and soldiers were courted on them at six francs per day until they produced the articles in demand the protestant church which had been closed was converted into barracks for the austrians after divine service had been suspended for six months at Nimes, the church called the temple by the Protestants was reopened, and public worship was performed on the morning of the 24th of December. 
on exclaiming the bell fry it was discovered that some persons had carried off the clapper of the bell as the hour of service approached a number of men women and children collected at the house of m rebet the pastor and threatened to prevent the worship at the appointed time when he proceeded towards the church he was surrounded by most savage shouts were raised against him some of the women seized him by the collar but nothing could disturb his firmness or excite his impatience he entered the house of prayer and ascended the pulpit stones were thrown in and fell among the worshippers still the congregation remained calm and attentive and the service was concluded amidst noise threats and outrage on retiring many would have been killed but for the chassiers of the garrison who honorably and zealously protected him from the captain of these chassiers m rebet soon after received the following letter january second eighteen sixteen i deeply lament the prejudices of the catholics against the protestants who they pretend to not love the king continue to act as you have hereto done and time and your conduct will convince the catholics to the contrary should any tumult occur similar of that of saturday last inform me i preserve my reports of these acts and if the agitators prove incorrigible and forget that they owe to the best of kings and the charter i will do my duty and inform the government of their proceedings adieu my dear sir assure the consistory of my esteem and of the sense i entertain of the moderation with which they have met the provocations of the evil disposed at sommers i have the honor to salute you with respect suval de lane another letter to this worthy pastor from the marquis de montlord was received on the sixth of january to encourage him to write to all the good men who believe in god to obtain the punishment of the assassins brigands and distributors of public tranquillity and to read the instructions he had received from the government to his effect publicly notwithstanding this on the twentieth of january eighteen sixteen when the service in commemoration of the death of louis the sixteenth was celebrated a procession being formed the national guards fired at the white flag suspended from the windows of the protestants and concluded the day by plundering their houses in the commune of angrierius matters were still worse and in that of fountains from the entry of the king in eighteen fifteen the catholics broke all terms with the protestants by day they insulted them and in the night broke open their doors or marked them with chalk to be plundered or burnt st mamor was re was repeatedly visited by these robberies and at montmarle as lately as the sixteenth of june eighteen sixteen the protestants were attacked beaten and imprisoned for daring to celebrate the return of a king who had soared who had sworn to preserve religious liberty and to main and to maintain the charter further account of the proceedings of the catholics at nimes the excesses perpetrated in the country it seems did not by any means divert the intention of the persecutors from nimes october eighteen fifteen commenced without any improvement in the principles or measures of the government and this was followed by corresponding presumption on the part of the people several houses in the quarter of st charles were sacked and their wrecks burnt in the streets amidst songs dances and shouts of vive de roy the mayor appeared but with merry multitude pretended not to know him and when he ventured to remonstrate they told him his presence was unnecessary and that he might retire during the sixteenth of october every perpetration seemed to announce the night of carnage orders for assembling and signals for attack 
were circulated with regularity and confidence. Tristallian reviewed his satellites and urged him on to the perpetration of crimes, holding with one of these wretches the following dialogue. Satellite, if all the Protestants, without one exception, are to be killed, I will cheerfully join. But as you have so often deceived me, unless they are all to go, I will not stir. Tristallian, come along then, for this time not a single man shall escape. This horrible purpose would have been executed, had it not been for General Lagarde, the commandment of the department. It was not until ten o'clock at night that he had perceived the danger. He now felt that not a moment could be lost. Crowds were advancing through the suburbs, and the streets were filling with ruffians, uttering the most horrid imprecations. The general sounded at eleven o'clock, and added to the confusion that was now spreading through the city. A few troops rallied around the Count Lagarde, who was wrung with distress at the sight of the evil which had arrived at such a pitch. Of this M. Durand, a Catholic advocate, gave the following account. It's near midnight. My wife had just fallen asleep. I was riding by her side, when we were disturbed by a distant noise. Drums seemed crossing the town in every direction. What could all this mean? To quiet her alarm, I said it probably announced the arrival or departure of some troops of the garrison, but firing and shouts were immediately audible, and on opening my window I distinguished horrible imprecations mingled with cries of vive de roi, I roused an officer who lodged in the house, and M. Chancel, director of public works. We went out together, and gained the boulevard. The moon shone bright, and almost every object was nearly as distinct as the day. A furious crowd was pressing on vowing extermination, and the greater part half-naked, arms with knives, muskets, sticks, and sabers. In answer to my inquiries, I was told the massacre was general that many had been already killed in the suburbs. M. Chancel retired to put on his uniform as captain of the Pompiers. The officers retired to the barracks, and anxious for my wife, I returned home. By the noise I was convinced that persons followed. I crept along in the shadows of the wall, opened my door, entered, and closed it, leaving a small aperture through which I could watch the movements of the party, whose arms shone in the moonlight. In the few moments, some armed men appearing conducting a prisoner to the very spot where I was conceited, they stopped. I shut my door gently, and mounted on an alder tree, planted against the garden wall. What a scene! A man on his knees, imploring mercy from wretches who mocked his agony, and loaded him with abuse. In the name of my wife and children, he said, Spare me! What have I done? Why would you murder me for nothing? I was on the point of crying out and menacing the murders with vengeance. I had longed to deliberate the discharge of several fusils terminated by my suspense. The unhappy supplicant struck in the loins, and the head fell to rise no more. The backs of the assassins were towards the tree. They retired immediately, reloaded their pieces. I descended and approached the dying man. Uttering some deep and dismal groans, some national guards arrived at the moment, and I again retired and shut the door. I see, said one, a dead man. He sings still, said another. It will be better, said a third, to finish him and put him out of his misery. Five or six muskets were fired instantly, and the girl seized. On the following day, crowds came to inspect and insult the deceased. 
a day after massacre was already observed as a short of feet and every occupation was left to go and gaze upon the victims this was louis leicher the father of four children and four years after the event m durand verified the account by his oath upon the trial of one of his murders attack upon the protestant churches some time before the death of general lagarde the duke of d'angulame had visited nimes and other cities in the south and at the former place honored the members of the protestant consistory with an interview promising them protection and encouraging them to reopen their temple so long shut up they have two churches at nimes and it was agreed that the small ones should be preferred on this occasion and that the ringing of the bell should be omitted general lagarde declared that he would answer with his head for the safety of his congregation the protestants privately informed each other that worship was once more to be celebrated at ten o'clock and they began to assemble silently and cautiously it was agreed that m jouleur should perform the service though such was his conviction of danger that he entreated his wife and some of his flock to remain with their families the temple being open only as a matter of form and in compliance with the orders of the duke d'angloume this pastor wished to be the only victim on his way to the place he passed numerous groups who regarded him with ferocious looks this is the time said some to give them the last blow yes added others and neither woman nor children must be spared one wretch raising his voice above the rest exclaimed ah i will go and get my musket and ten for my share though these ominous sounds of amjulera pursued his course but when he gained the temple the sexton had not the courage to open the door and he was obliged to do it himself as the worshippers arrived they found strange persons in the possession of the adjacent streets and upon the steps of the church vowing their worship should not be performed and crying down with the protestants kill them kill them at ten o'clock the church being nearly filled m j cassier commenced the prayers a calm that succeeded was of short duration on a sudden the minister was interrupted by a violent noise and a number of persons entered uttering the most dreadful cries mingled with vive de roi but the guard armed succeeded in excluding these fanatics and closing the door the noise and tumult now redoubled and the blows of the populace trying to break open the doors caused the house to resound with shrieks and groans the voice of the pastors who endeavored their counsel to their flock was inaudible they attempted in vain to sing the forty-second psalm three-quarters of an hour rolled heavily away i place myself said madame Jullerat, at the bottom of the pulpit with my daughter in my arms my husband at length joined me and sustained me i remember that it was the anniversary of my marriage after six years of happiness i said i am about to die with my husband and my daughter we shall be slain at the altar of our god the victims of a sacred duty and heaven will open to receive us and our unhappy brethren and i bless the redeemer and without cursing our murders i awaited their approach m oliver son of a pastor an officer in the royal troops of the line attempted to leave the church but the friendly centennials at the door advised him to remain besieged with the rest the national guards refused to act and the fanatical crowd took every advantage of the absence of general lagarde and of their increasing numbers at length the sound of martial music was heard and voices from without called to be besieged 
open open and save yourselves their first impression was a fear of treachery but they were soon assured that the detach that a detachment returning from mass was drawn up in front of the church to favor the retreat of the protestants the door was opened and many of them escaped among the ranks of the soldiers who had driven the mob before them but this street as well as the others though which the fugitive had to pass was soon filled again the venerable pastor oliver desmond between seventy and eighty years of age was surrounded by murders they put their fists in his face and cried kill the chief of brigands he was preserved by the firmness of some officers among whom was his own son they made a bulwark round him with their bodies and amidst their naked sabres conducted him to his house m Juliet, who had assisted at Dravine service with his wife at his side and his child in his arms was pursued and assailed with stones the mother received a blow on his head and her life was some time in danger one woman was shamefully whipped and several wounded and dragged along the streets the number of Protestants more or less ill-treated on this occasion amounted to between seventy and eighty. Murder of General Lagarde. At length a check was put to these excesses by the report of the murder of Count Lagarde, who, receiving an account of the tumult, mounted his horse and entered one of the streets to disperse a crowd. A villain seizes brittle. Another presented the muzzle of a pistol close to his body and exclaimed, "'Wretch, you make me retire!' He immediately fired. The murder was Louis Boston, a surgeon in the National Guard. But though known to everyone, no person endeavored to arrest him, and he effected his escape. As soon as the general found himself wounded, he gave orders to the gendarmerie to protect the Protestants, and set off on a gallop to his hotel, but fainted immediately on his arrival. On recovering, he prevented the surgeon from searching his wound until written a letter to the government that in case of his death it might be known from what quarter the blow came, and that none might dare to accuse the Protestants of the crime. The probable death of this general produced a small degree of relaxation on the part of their enemies, and some calm, but the mass of the people had been indulged in licentiousness too long to be restrained, even by the murder of the representative of the king. In the evening they again repaired to the temple, and with hashes broke open the door. The dismal nose of their blows carried terror into the bosom of Protestant families. Sitting in their houses in tears, the contents of the poor box and the clothes prepared for distribution were stolen. The minister's robes rent in pieces, the books torn up or carried away, the closets were ransacked, but the rooms which contained the archives of the church and the synods were providentially secured, and had it not been for the numerous patrols on foot, the whole would have become the prey of the flames, and the edifice itself a heap of ruins. In the meanwhile the fanatics openly ascribed the murder of the general to his own self-devotion, and said, That I is the will of God. Three thousand francs were offered for the apprehension of Balsian, but it was well known that the Protestants dared not arrest him, and that the fanatics would not. During these transactions, the system of forced conversions to Catholicism was making regular and fearful progress. Interference of the British government. To the credit of England, the report of these cruel persecutions carried on against their Protestant brethren in France produced such a sanation on the part of the government as determined them to interfere. 
and now the persecutors of Protestants made this spontaneous act of humanity and religion the pretext for changing the sufferers with a treasonable correspondence with England. But in the state of their proceedings, to their great dismay, a letter appeared, sent some time before England by the Duke of Wellington, stating that much information existed on the events of the South. The ministers of the three denominations in London, anxious not to be misled, requested one of their brethren to visit the scenes of persecution, and examine with impartiality the nature of extent of the evils they were desirous to relieve. Reverend Clement Perriot undertook this difficult task, and fulfilled their wishes with a zeal, prudence, and devotedness above all praise. His return furnished abundant and inconstable proof of shameful persecution. Materials for an, ap an appeal to the British Parliament, and a printed report, which was circulated through the continent, and which first conveyed correct information to the inhabitants of France. Foreign interference was now found immensely useful, and the declarations of tolerance which it elicited from the French government, as well as the more cautious march of the Catholic persecutors, opened as decisive an involuntary acknowledgment of the importance of that interference, which some persons at first censured and despised, put through the stern voice of public opinion in England, and elsewhere produced a resultant suspension of massacre, and pillaged the murders and plunders, were still left unpunished, and even caressed and rewarded for their crimes, and while Protestants in France suffered the most cruel and degrading plains and penalties for alleged trifling crimes, Catholics covered with blood and guilty of numerous and horrid murders were acquitted. Perhaps the virtuous indignation expressed by some of the more enlightened Catholics against these abominable proceedings, and had no small share in restraining them. Many innocent Protestants had been condemned to the galleys, and otherwise punished for supposed crimes upon the oaths of wretches, the most unprincipled and abandoned M. Madier de Mongo, judge of the corps royal of Nimes, and president of the corps d'assises of the guard, and Vauclus, upon one occasion felt himself compelled to the break-up of the court, rather than take the disposition of that notorious and sanguinary monster. Trumphemy, in a hall, says he, of the palace of justice, opposite that in which I sat, several unfortunate persons persecuted by the fiction were upon trial. Every disposition tending to their crimination was applauded with the cries of Vive de Roy. Three times the exposition of his atrocious joy became so terrible that it was necessary to send for reinforcements from the barracks, and two hundred soldiers were often unable to restrain the people. On a sudden the shouts and cries of Vive de Roy redoubled the man arrived. Carist applauded. It was horrible triumphy. He approached the tribunal. He came to dispose against the prisoners. He was admitted as a witness. He raised his hand to take the oath. Seized with horror at consent to see that wretch admitted to give evidence in a court of justice, in the city which he had filled with murders, in the place on the steps of which he had murdered, the unfortunate Borillion, I cannot admit that he should kill his victims by his testimonies, no more by his poingars, he an accuser, he a witness. No, never will I consent to see this mother rise, in the presence of magistrates to take a sacrilegious oath, his hand still reeking with blood, 
These words were repeated out of doors. The witness trembled. The factious also trembled. The factious who guided the tongue of Tremphemy as they had directed his arms, who dictated calumny after they had taught him murder. These words penetrated the dungeons of the condemned and inspired hope. They gave another courageous advocate the resolution to expose the cause of the persecutors. He carried the prayers of innocence and misery to the foot of the throne. There he asked if the evidence of the Tremphemy was not sufficient to annual sentence. The king granted a full and free pardon. Ultimate resolution of the Protestants at Nimes. With respect to the conduct of the Protestants, these highly outraged citizens, pushed to the extremities by their persecutors, felt at length that they had only to choose the manner in which they were to perish. They unanimously determined that they should die fighting in their own defense. The firm attitude apprised their butchers that they could no longer murder with impunity. Everything was immediately changed. Those who for four years had filled others with terror now felt in their turn. They troubled at the force which men so long resigned found in despair, and their alarm was heightened when they heard that the inhabitants of the Sivens, persuaded of the danger of their brethren, were marching to their assistance. But without waiting for these reinforcements, the Protestants appeared at night in the same order, and armed in the same manner as their enemies. The others paraded the boulevards with their usual noise and fury, but the Protestants remained silent and firm in the posts they had chosen. Three days these dangerous and ominous meetings continued, but the infusion of blood was prevented by the efforts of some worthy citizens distinguished by their rank and fortune. By sharing the dangers of the Protestant population, they obtained the pardon of an enemy who now trembled while he menaced. End of chapter 21 Recording by Chris Caron